0: Listen, says God, heaven is my throne, the earth my footstool. What house could you make for me? What place to take my rest? All of this is the work of my hand, and everything on earth belongs to me. And yet my eyes are drawn to those with humble and contrite hearts who listen to my word. Let us make our prayers of adoration and confession. Let us pray. (coughs) Holy, 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 God of earth and heaven, of endless space and fathomless deep, of fire and wind and elemental powers we come before you with contrite hearts to worship you today. We acknowledge your power in the chaos and the darkness that surround us, in the vastness and silence of eternity, and in the mysterious complexity of each human person. Your spirit alone broods over the depths of creation, comprehending its magnitude, its glory and its pain, and turning the chaos into splendor. Holy, 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 God most high, throned in majesty, you disdain our throne's our palaces, our temples, and our monuments. And yet you are not proud to draw close to the loving and the humble, to speak in the gentle voice of a friend, to look at us with the eyes of a child, and to breathe the breath of life into our small hopes, dreams, and passions. You who walked in the garden in the cool of the evening, walk with us now in the wilderness places of our world, where through your strength alone we glimpse your glory. holy, 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 as we think about God, who seeks to be closer to us than our own sighs and longings, we remember how often we have refused the still small voice that calls us and followed instead the desires and devices of our own hearts. And so we make our confession. Holy God, we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed. In what we have done and in what we have failed to do through ignorance, through weakness, and through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry and repent of our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past, and grant that we may serve you in newness of life, to the glory of your name. Amen. Usually we make our prayers for others at the end of the service. However, today, while we're all together as a family, let us keep a few moments silence as we remember the people of Japan suffering so much in the recent earthquake. we join our prayers for the suffering world with those of our prayers for the coming kingdom as we say the words that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
1: Our Old Testament readings this morning are, from, are set in the Garden of Eden. And the first lesson is Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God placed a man in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and guard it. He said to him, you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except the tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is bad. You must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. And Genesis 3, 1 7. Now, the snake was the most pure, cunning animal that the Lord God had made. The snake asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? We may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, the woman answered, except the tree in the middle of it. God told us not to eat the fruit of that tree or even touch it. If we do, we will die. The snake replied, That's not true. You will not die. God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. The woman saw how beautiful the tree was and how good its fruit would be to eat, and she thought how wonderful it would be to become wise. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, and he also ate it. As soon as they had eaten it, They were given understanding and realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. And the New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. The spirits led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After spending 40 days and nights without food, Jesus was hungry. Then the devil came and said, If you are God's son, order these stones to turn into bread. But Jesus answered, The scripture says human beings cannot live on bread alone, but need every word that God speaks. Then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, set him on the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are God's son, throw yourself down, for the scripture says God will give orders to his angels about you. They will hold you up in their hands so that not even your feet will be hurt on the stones. Jesus answered, But the scripture also says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all their greatness. All this I will give you, the devil said, if you kneel down and worship me. Then Jesus answered, Go away, Satan. The scripture says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left Jesus and angels came and helped him. Amen.
0: The lectionary readings that we heard today, we'll be sharing with Christians throughout Glasgow and throughout the world. And they draw our attention to the contrast between the garden and the wilderness. The garden and the wilderness. But this time of year, looking out of my back window, you'd be very hard-pressed to tell the difference between them. However, in our culture and in many others, there's a huge symbolic distinction between the garden, the cultivated space, and the wild and barren places we call wilderness. I remember when I was sat in an art lesson at school, and my teacher, Mrs. Bennington, held open a book. Look, girls, she said. It was one of those schools. Look, girls. This is a Persian garden. Exquisite, green, beautifully walled with tiles on the wall. Geometric paths and symmetrical flower beds. Peacocks and the sound of fountains. Perfume and sweet fleshly fruit. A Persian garden. And built in the desert. Well, that's the whole point of this kind of garden. It's a garden in the desert to remind people of the paradise of God in the midst of the wastelands of the world. I was only 12, but I kind of got the idea. What followed was harder. Now, draw your own Persian garden, she said when you've only got stiff, thick brushes and the primary colours mixed rather too thinly. That was quite a challenge. A story. There wasn't time to pack when they were expelled from Eden. What to take anyway? The garlands of flowers picked at first light only lasted a day and were bruised and rank by morning. You can't take the songs of the nightingales that once stirred your innocent sleep. You could not pack the scent of divine sweetness that used to move on the warm evening air. So it was only the clothes the pair stood up in, stitched indeed by God's own hand, but rather roughly because of the hurry and the exasperation of the tailor. But there were still pockets in them, and into one Eve slipped the seed much bigger than an apple pip. This was no ordinary cox's orange pippin, and smooth and shining. It had not dried out or become shriveled. She clutched her fingers round it, as bowed low with fear and trembling. She and Adam passed beneath the fiery sword of the angel and out onto the blank whiteness of the plain. The first years were very difficult. They moved around a good deal. The boys were born, sibling rivalry, very demanding. It was not surprising, Eve thought, that they were restless and wild given the circumstances, but the little girl made up for it. They were more settled by the time she was born, and in the last days of her pregnancy, Eve took a stick from the ground and marked out in miniature what she remembered of the contours of Eden. She couldn't rebuild the garden, of course. But with white pebbles, she patterned paths and flowerbeds, and in the centre of her labyrinth, she planted the seed. Strange, it was moist still, and had not grown dull. It was, of course, a painful birth, but Eve knew better by now how to plunge into the great aching tides that overwhelmed her body. The girl grew. She picked little flowers on the plain, and wove fragile necklaces and bangles. She sang as she worked beside her mother, and as Eve closed her eyes, she could almost recall the peace of Eden, almost hear again soft footfalls on the paths at evening. And as the girl grew, so did the tree. Eve sometimes wondered if she'd made a mistake and planted just an ordinary fruit tree in her garden. The parent had looked so fine in Eden, but its offspring was rather crooked and bent. White caterpillars swarmed upon its leaves in April, and although she tried to pick each one off, the leaves were half-eaten and brown at the tips. The tree did not thrive, but it did survive. The girl grew, the tree lived, and the years passed. Eve lost her own moistness and plumpness. She was old now. One morning, she rose from sleep to labor, as was her fate, and she saw with surprise that the tree was hung with flowers. She knew them, knew their dark red hearts and the fruits that were already forming within them. Come, she said, come and look. But Adam was away delving amongst the thistles. Everybody knows that Eden was definitely in Scotland. And her daughter was somewhere else, spinning perhaps No one came. They found her when they returned, still beneath the tree, a smile on her face that Adam recognised as the one she'd worn long ago when all the world was bright. There were petals on her face, her clothes and on the ground all around her. How beautiful, said the girl as she knelt beneath the branches. Adam could not tell whether she was talking about her mother or the tree spreading out its arms above her, that even now stood full and laden with fruit. That was a story. This is a legend. What God required of him appeared only very slowly to Francis. At first he was happy enough, going more regularly to church, fasting and confessing. Then he realised that he would have to leave his father's house and the life he'd known there. It caused a great scandal, but afterwards there were peaceful years spent as a holy beggar, repairing the walls and altars of small deserted chapels in the Umbrian hills. He feared the lepers, whose bells he heard sometimes ringing loudly in the lonely countryside. And it was a big step for him to recognise that his life should be spent with them, not on the wooded hills or amongst the ancient olive groves and vineyards, but in the city dumps outside Assisi. With his brothers, he made home in the deserted pig sheds that clustered around a small chapel near the city gate. A gradual journey from a fine table, fine clothes and accommodating faith, from candles and incense and music to this barren, lawless place marked with an ancient Shirene shrine shrine where lepers worshipped and friars bathed their wounds. But Francis was happy. It seemed that strangely there was light and peace here. But then temptation came. A temptation. What should he really be doing? Perhaps God required a pure and shriven heart, rather than this haphazard and chaotic life of passionate friendships. Perhaps service could be better given in the calmness of an enclosed cloister or the civilized order of the bishop's palace rather than in this God-forsaken wilderness. It was the middle of the night, but Francis rose and went out into the sweetness of the fresh air. It was too sweet, even this poverty too rich. The devil was tempting him with the glory of the stars and the gold of the moon. In anguish, the saint tore off his monk's habit as if it were no different from the rich silks and furs he'd worn in his youth. He strode over to the tangled brambles and threw himself right into the middle of their thorns. And then it was, the miracle happened. The brambles became smooth, the matted stalks budded and then flowered. Where bulbs had been there was now a glory of roses, roses without thorns. Still there today. They built a great ugly basilica right over the small chapel. The pig sheds are long gone and the graves of the lepers unmarked. But they had to create a garden there where the light of heaven still reaches in so that the roses can bloom. And now, an experience of my own. When I was young, I lived for a while in South Africa and I made many friends against those struggling amongst those struggling against apartheid. I came home, I became a lecturer and worked for a while in Zimbabwe and I met many of my old friends who were in exile in that country. This was the days before um, this regime changed. One particular friend I knew was in Zimbabwe but I hadn't met him and I was keen to trace him. I had an old address but he'd moved. So someone told me that I could find him because he was now assistant manager of Allied Assurance in Harare. And that seemed very unlikely to me. Andre had been a Catholic student activist when I knew him, and he always wore shorts and had a bracelet of ostrich shells around his wrists. Nevertheless, I phoned this bizarre corporate location, and I got to speak to him, and we arranged to meet the next night. It was a huge shock to see him in a suit and tie and an even bigger shock when we drove out of the shabby, bourg and decked avenues of the town where all the radical people lived and out to what was still the white suburbs. Why was he living here? We drove down a long drive to a large white colonial house set in a beautifully neat garden. The living room door was open to the garden and the room furnished immaculately in ugly, dark wood. There was a picture of a rhino on the wall. I was totally confused, but Andre looked as if he had a secret joke. We passed from the orderly room, down the corridor, and into the kitchen. And this, said Andre, leading me into the messy place where his partner, Carla, and the two little boys were sat around the messy table. And this, he said, is where we live. His suit, his house, the respectable job, the front room. He told me were was necessary to deflect attention away from the family. The country was not safe. The South African secret police were active and many assassinations had taken place. So he was living in disguise. He opened the fridge and gave me a beer. I needed it. After we'd eaten, cooked chicken from the takeaway, watermelon, etc., we stepped out into the night at the back of the house. And unlike the front garden, which was so neatly tended, the back was wild. Queen of the night sent its heavy perfume over the overgrown flower beds. I picked some to take indoors with me. Be careful not to fall in, said Carla, pointing to the empty shell of a swimming pool. It was completely dry with a layer of rubble in the bottom. There are probably snakes there. In what had been the servants' blocks, typically located far away from the building, a noisy group of people were finishing their own evening meal. They placed chairs and benches on the cleared earth in front of the grim concrete building. There used to be a gardener and a maid living here, said Carla. And they stayed on when we came and then more and more people turned up and they live here now. I liked the noise, the smell of the smoke, the flickering lights in the darkness. This was a more interesting place. Its untidy exuberance was overcoming the cultivated borders of the old country. We sat breathing in the smells and listening to the sounds of dogs and children. We were complicit in our approval of all around us but also aware of its fragility, the poverty that existed, and the danger that we were facing. It's the first Sunday in Lent, which admittedly is a very serious time. So why am I telling you these stories instead of doing my proper job trying to put the fear of God into you and urging you not to eat chocolate? The lectionary passages for today, the wilderness and the garden, are very resonant. People put these passages together for a reason. And they're drawing upon traditions that go back a long way. These are traditional Lenten readings. And we might look at them and compare human weakness, falling for temptation, with the victory of Christ over the devil... You know the idea. It's spelled out in a passage from Romans 5, also set for today, which we did not read. But the stories in the Bible carry more than one meaning, and they challenge us in more than one way. And this happened to me when I reread the passages from Genesis and Matthew in preparation for this sermon, and thought again about the relationship between the wilderness and the garden the wilderness and the garden. We're encouraged by easy convention to see these as two separate worlds that never meet. There in the garden of God, only the blessed and innocent walk. Out there in the wilderness, there is wickedness and temptation. But our Christian tradition is much more rich and complex than this. It is an insight as old as the church, repeated by Augustine, Aquinas, Mother Julian, John Milton... And sung annually in the ancient hymn of the Easter Vigil. That a happy fault caused our expulsion from Eden. And was necessary indeed that we might encounter God in the flesh, in the incarnation, in the wilderness of the world. O happy fault that merited such a redeemer, as the Easter Anthem. Jesus, we remember, encountered not only the devil in the wilderness, but also angels. And it was the place where he withdrew when he needed to find the strength for his mission and when he needed to commune with God. I told you three stories. The first was inspired by a line in the novel by one of my favorite authors, Elizabeth Smart, who imagines herself calling out to a beloved child as it reaches maturity. Come into the garden, my darling. See, your apples are ripe. Banished as we are from Eden, we nevertheless carry with us the memory of its bliss and the seeds that we have stolen. We will again and again mark out its shape in desert sands, and we will see our own fruits ripen and stretch out to taste them. And more, it seems that this must be. This chaos must be. This fall is fortunate, for it is in the wilderness that we exist, not innocent but human and where we encounter God become human for us. The second story is of Francis. A wonderful wee picture of the brambles blossoming as roses. Here the saint seeks the spiritual rigor of the wilderness, terrified of the sweetness of the garden. And yet the briars lose their thorns and break into blooms before him. I bet at first he wasn't pleased, having sought out the mortification of the flesh, to find himself in a garden of delights. But that is the way of God. There is a paradox in our wilderness experience, our spiritual journeys, the honey sweetness of manna on our tongues. Lastly, my own story. A formative experience of being in a place where garden and wilderness were taking on new forms. In the context of our struggles for peace and for justice, for a place to be between the world it is as it is and the world we believe God wills it to be, we see that the neat garden can be a place of deception, a place of order that is false and corrupt and oppressive. The wilderness can be a place where we begin to see new worlds emerging from chaos. But what emerges in these places is fragile and tentative. It can be dangerous to walk there. There might be snakes. It is the first Sunday of Lent. We remember Jesus in the wilderness and how he was tempted by the devil and ministered to by angels. This is not a soft or gentle time of year. We acknowledge that we are compelled, we are called, we are challenged to go out into the desert places. So let's go then. We make our journey, not under any illusion that the wilderness is a safe, a friendly or a comfortable place. The temptations it contains are very powerful indeed. But within its chaos, God's power is also wonderfully manifest. So this season, mark the wilderness with your own patterns of pebbles, search out the strange blossoming plants of the desert, and wonder at how God can be stirring mysteries to birth in this barren and beautiful place. But be careful, my dear ones, of the snakes. Amen. We're now going to make our prayers of intercession. Could I ask you please to turn to Common Ground, hymn number 21? You'll see there's five verses to this song and a refrain. And our prayers are divided into five sections. I'm going to ask for your prayers. And then I would hope you will respond by singing a verse and the refrain. Let us pray. Let's pray for the church and for the world and let us thank God for his goodness. I ask your prayers firstly for the church at this time. Many sense we are at a point in the turning of the years when new things are coming into being And old things are dying. Our churches in this place, across the country, are marked by change. And we are waiting, still in the darkness, for the morning to come. Your prayers for the peace of the world. For those involved in the long, hard conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. Particularly at the moment, for those in Israel, Palestine, Libya, and Egypt, and all struggling for justice peace and joy in these holy lands. your prayers for those in need and want. Those whose plans and hopes have been swept away by economic forces far away from them and far beyond their control. Those affected by environmental change, loss of habitats, livelihoods and lands, those whose harvests have failed and those whose wells have run dry. your prayers for those who are unsheltered those whose homes are damp and broken and cold those who have fled their homes into exile or living as strangers in a strange land Pray for those whose homes have become fearful places because of violence or abuse. your prayers for this congregation, for its minister and people, for the young people growing up here, for those taking difficult decisions about the future. I ask your prayers that God will continue to bind us together into a loving community that rejoices in the spirit and shares Christ's compassion in this place. join and say the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.